Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Many software solutions for healthcare could be described as solutions lacking empathy for the users. Too often, Solutions are addressing products' viability and feasibility, but put desirability on the second place of priorities, says Tim Peck, Executive Portfolio Director of Health at IDEO. Tim is an entrepreneur and a Harvard-trained emergency medicine physician who has been practicing human-centered design for over a decade. He spent three months in a nursing home to grasp the reality and problems of the environment before he built Call9, a health technology company that provided telemedicine for nursing home residents. In this discussion, we talked about designing healthcare. What is human-centered design? How to ask questions in your user research? What are the main mistakes innovators make? We'll hear more about this in this discussion. So enjoy the show and to browse through other episodes as well, visit facesofdigitalhealth.com. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. We're going to air episode number 200 next week. But now let's learn about design in healthcare. Tim, hi. Before we begin a discussion about design in healthcare, I would like to clarify some of the basics. So what are we talking about when talking about design in healthcare? How would you define that? When we talk about design in general, but there's also design in healthcare, we talk about something that is human-centered. And this this term has been co-opted by many I mean, patient-centered, but for us in design, we think of all the humans and all the stakeholders that are involved in an organization or in a system. And so really, it's not only the patients on the ground, but the families, the providers, those administrators that use software involved in healthcare, et cetera. And how do you create not only a great and desirable experience for them, which is what a lot of people think about it, design is about making something pretty, making something, having a friendly user experience. But it's not only about that. When we think about human-centered design and, and, and what we call design thinking, we have three pillars that we weigh. We weigh that desirability piece, the piece that most people associate with design. But we also weigh the viability piece, making sure whatever's being made can exist and either be profitable or funded and definitely be sustainable over time, as well as feasible, meaning it can operate and, and not break down and continue to operate. So we talk about viability, feasibility, and desirability, matching all those three, and in the center, in the Venn diagram, where all those things cross, comes great design. What would you say are some of the key qualities that uh, designers or user experience designers have to have for healthcare? So on the one hand, healthcare is extremely complex to understand. It's uh, filled with uh, emotions, stressful environment where solutions need need to work. It's specific from that perspective. The number one thing is really empathy and empathy building skills. 
And that's something a lot of us are born with. It's also something a lot of us develop over time in our lives, through our childhoods. We're taught how to be empathetic and understanding of others. But there is a number of tools in our toolkit that we can use to create empathy as designers and understand what the human experience is, the patient journey, the provider journey. One of those tools that we use is called at IDEO, the, the firm that I work for, the worldwide uh, firm that I work for that, that is really leading in human-centered design, is um, called Design Research. And design research is something, it, it has some quantitative pieces to it, but it's more, there's a lot of qualitative pieces. Interviewing patients, users, and spending a lot of time with them, trying to find the edges of their experiences and understanding where systems are breaking, and then understanding that your users are often your best designers. And so in healthcare, we find that all the time, especially in nurses are amazing designers. They are constantly hacking the system, working around the systems that they have and designing solutions in their everyday life. And our job isn't necessarily to tell them, hey, stop ha hacking, stop doing that. It's to look at those hacks and say, how can we make those easier on them? How could we change the software, the systems, the organizations to be more, to have better flow in their lives? I find it interesting that you said that users are the best designers because in from the product management or product development perspective, you wouldn't uh, take that position. You would say the, the user won't know what he really needs. You need to observe the user and try to figure out how to make his life easier. Now, obviously, in healthcare, that's really difficult because you might want to optimize processes, but you can't really do that without the hospital's involvement and the involvement of the top management. And everybody needs to learn how to work in new ways, which can be complex. So what we look for in terms of great clients that work for great systems to try to change. And we work, we design products, things that you can drop on the ground, insulin pens, breast pumps, things of that nature. But we also design whole companies, startups. We or design new ways of big Fortune 500 companies working and reorganize them. We work for a whole government. We work for not-for-profits. We're, we're not only products, but services, organizations, and really in the name of systems change. And so what we look for are what we like to call enlightened leaders, people who are leading these companies who know that healthcare is typically built much more for the, again, that viability, feasibility of the system and much less for the desirability of the people using the healthcare system. That comes second. That's a far second is the patient experience and the, and the provider experience. And so we look for people who know that and want to change that. And who understand after talking to us, working with us, that they can themselves have the creative confidence to look within their own organization and say, where are the gaps? Where are the providers in my system or the patients? How are they hacking around the systems that they've, I've given them? And then, as you said, you don't necessarily ask them, how should I make a solution to fix this problem? You don't ask the patient or the provider that necessarily. But you do observe how they are fixing the problem. 
And then from there, design out a more systemic solution that does take into account the, the, the viability and feasibility part. And yeah, it is a combination of observation, but also the insights of individuals are of uh, extreme importance. You mentioned that uh, you need to talk a lot to the users, observe what they're doing. And I would like to just pick your brain a little bit on how to talk to the users. So what's your process when preparing for discussions to the end users? Because it's easy to say you have to understand them, but then when it comes to really figuring out how to, to ask them questions without asking directly, so you get a meaningful answer, that's when things become a little bit tricky. Yeah, I'll give two techniques of the many that exist. One is, as you're saying, asking the right questions are important. I think very often we as designers uh, fall into the trap of going into an interview. And an interview with a patient should be 45 minutes, an hour. It could be two hours. We're talking about long interviews to not only understand this one problem that you're trying to fix, but talking about their life, understanding how their life intersects with whatever healthcare problem you're trying to figure out. And so we use a tool called How Might We? And we say this to one another all the time, which is how might we solve this problem? And the term How Might We? does a few things. One, it opens up the world of possibilities. Instead of starting with how do we do this one particular thing, and say, we say, how might we explore this topic? And we go through a process called divergence, where we are just trying to open the aperture, to try, keep trying to know more and more about this person's life, about this problem, and don't zero in on the uh, problem and itself quite yet and converge on it. After we get there, the, the other thing about how might we is that this says the word we. It's not how might you fix this problem? How might I fix this problem? But how might we, how might your community fix this problem? How might we as designers and our partner of the user fix this problem? And it helps for a much more collaborative way. After we've gone through divergence, we start to convert. And we start to get more specific around the questions and into the problem. Often what happens <clears throat> is that for those who aren't taking the time with their users to really give them a lot of time to, to speak to them, it's over after that. But we'd like to go through another divergence, another let's get wide again after we understand things. Now let's get narrow again. Let's get wide. And you get this constant reshuffling of, of your knowledge as you move through. But I think a lot of product designers, UI, UX, are there with the intention of saying, okay, we got to get down to one pinpoint problem to, to solve. We got to do that quickly and we got to move through this interview and get there. But patience to be able to converge diverge is really important. Uh, another thing to talk about is kind of immersive and radically immersive design research, which is putting yourself in the patient or the provider's shoes and literally going to the environment, being there observing and spending a whole day with a single patient to see what their journey is like, for example, and not just taking a shortcut of saying, let's survey a whole bunch of people about this question, but really taking the time to observe individuals over a long period of time. When talking about patient experience, uh, we are increasingly talking about the customer experience. And it's been 
uh, popular to address the patient as the customer um, more and more. To a certain extent, that's good because when we say customer experience, the association is usually uh, to the comfort of the the customer. So, you know, that he or she feels good, that the experience is really well organized. However, when talking about patients as consumers or as customers, there's a lot of heated discussions on the topic because patients don't necessarily like to be seen as consumers because, you know, it's a little bit different if you go grocery shopping or shopping for a new dress than choosing chemotherapy at the end stage of cancer. So what's your, what are your thoughts about that, that mental mindset about how should we perceive the patient? Yeah, I think... All of these words are important to lobby around and debate, but they're built off of a faulty assumption. So you have to fix this assumption first. And the assumption, and, and if you fix that assumption, then the word consumer doesn't become so bad anymore. It actually becomes empowering, which is the entire healthcare system as we know it is based around episodes of care. It's based around an event where a patient usually physically goes to a provider and meets with them. You capture information in that moment. Maybe you talk about the patient's history, but you capture information that moment, give a treatment, they go, they come back to the office three months later, a year later, you have another episode of care. Being able to step back for a second and say, the point of the healthcare system is to keep people healthy. And it's not necessarily just for the health in these moments. Like, how could we observe? How could we as healthcare providers and health systems observe and be part of a patient's life 24-7? How could we be there with them? And so that means thinking about alternative models of care, delivering care to people rather than people to care through telemedicine, remote patient monitoring, et cetera. But also now the role of the coach, Right. There's a lot of apps out there that have patient navigation systems, apps that are helping with weight loss. And you have coaches or social workers or non-physicians or, or mid-levels working on people's health calm and headspace and others that are helping with the psychiatric and behavioral health, drug addiction, etc. We have all of the, the, the remote monitorings that we wear on our watches and our rings. All of these things are surrounding us. And if you step back and say, how do we take all of that data holistically around the patient and think about all of the health of the patient, you no longer need to look through the lens of a episode of care. And so they no longer become a patient necessarily to you. They become someone who is a partner and a consumer of all of these different apps and all of these different ways of getting healthcare and need to start to integrate it. So I think the next big frontier for medicine is integrating all that data to have holistic views of patients so that empowers that patient to pick and choose what's good for them, not necessarily having to rely on this single episode of care that they have. And, and when you do that, talking about the word consumer becomes much less dirty than just thinking about a consumer going in to see a, a, a doctor as a patient. I hope you're enjoying the discussion with him so far and we'll go right back into it after hearing a few words from our today's sponsor. 
Are you still meeting people in person only? Are you using LinkedIn but not getting much value out of it? It's time to do things the new way. Create or strengthen your professional brand on LinkedIn to research new market opportunities or just sell your solutions. If you want to build digital-first relationships to get more opportunities, clients or partners, invest in yourself and attend the Master E-Networking Live course on Maven. In just 10 days, you'll digitize and build your network. You will learn how to maximize the value of any event you're attending. Learn more by going to masterenetworking.com. That's masterenetworking.com and use the code Faces of Digital Health 10 for a discount. Find the link in the show notes. The next cohort starts on April the 4th and enrollments are open. Now let's dive back into the discussion about designing healthcare with Tim Peck from IDEO. You've got a very interesting personal journey because you, by background, you're a physician and your particular interest is in the design of experience in end-of-life care and battling loneliness and isolation. In the last two years, these topics have been increasingly highlighted because of the uh, pandemic. So can you tell me a little bit more about what exactly did you design in this space so far and how have the last two years impacted your work? Because you mentioned before how important it is for the designers to spend as much time uh, with the end users as possible. And that uh, at the moment is not exactly possible due to the COVID restrictions. True. Yeah. You have to be pretty original and uh, creative around how you are spending time with patients and, and providers now. Due to the pandemic. Yeah, so my own journey, I'm an emergency physician by train. I left traditional medicine in 2015 and full-time and moved out to Silicon Valley and created my first health tech startup that was full-time. That was called Call9, which is a physician group and a telehealth and platform that helped patients be with patients at their most vulnerable moments in, in nursing homes. So the moments when they normally be called calling 911 and being transported to the emergency department, instead we would treat them in place. And this was all based around human-centered design and had a, a very immersive experience myself where I went and lived in a nursing home for three months uh, to understand everything I could about not only the patient experience, but about the provider experience, about uh, spent time with the 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 accountant and spend time with the administrator and the IT person and just really understanding every single aspect of that system we could uh, to create that company. The newest company that was made after the pandemic and so it was is called Curve and that's been incubated at IDEO uh, and invested in by IDEO. So doing that in partnership with them and that also is a telemedicine and data platform that is helping patients, chronic care patients. Uh, and assisted livings, home care, nursing homes, etc., and getting to them when others. The pandemic was really interesting to to create opportunities worldwide. So, what happened, I think, gets back to this consumer question that you had before, where suddenly, because we were isolated to our homes, we suddenly were you know, didn't have the same choices we once were. It was scary. It was frightening to go to the emergency department because it didn't quite know what was going on there. It still is at times, but it is important to do so when you need it. And so because of that, patients started becoming consumers and voting with their feet. 
they started saying, I'm not going to go into the emergency department necessarily. I'm going to use this provider app. I'm going to wait for my health system, if they make a telemedicine system, to engage with them. And it created this whole new way of thinking and saying, okay, I feel okay with consuming clinical care in this manner because it's better, safer, quicker, faster, more convenient than, than what's out there. And so now we've changed our behaviors enough that it's created this whole burgeoning industry um, it's been around for a while, but now has amazing adoption. One of the U.S. statistics is that before the pandemic, when I started, it was about one or two percent of doctors had ever used telemedicine. Now it's 85 percent of doctors in the U.S. use telemedicine as part of their practice. It's a consistent part, not just every once in a while, but a consistent part of practice. So that's an incredible enough. Those numbers have been changing quite a lot uh, throughout the pandemic, and they still vary today. So if in the beginning we went from 3% to 100%, some even say that now we are back to the pre-pandemic numbers because just are moving back to the, the old ways. I think it's going to be interesting to observe how that's going to stick in the long run. But I want to go back just a little bit to that experience that you had in the nursing home. As a physician, that's already a huge uh, leverage to any company because if you're selling to physicians uh, or clinicians as a physician, you definitely have a different starting position than if you're uh, a salesperson, uh, regardless of the knowledge that you hold. And also, if if you have a physician background and start working on the design, you already have a much better understanding than if you came to design for healthcare from another industry. But at the same time, despite having this background, you spent uh, three months specifically in the nursing home to understand the problem that you were trying to solve. So how did your perspective or observation in that time change? No, yeah. And so first of all, healthcare is so siloed. Right. So divided. So I was an emergency physician working in the emergency department and realized that. So the stats were 19 percent of the patients that were coming by ambulance to the emergency were from nursing homes and, and rehabs, chronic care patients. And so that's a, a staggering amount. And but I realized I had no idea why I, I had never stepped foot in a nursing home because it's so siloed. It wasn't part of my training wasn't my part of my training as an emergency physician. Those worlds don't talk to one another. And there's a lot of finger pointing saying, how could you send this patient to me in the emergency department? And then there's finger pointing from the nursing home side saying to the emergency department, how could you treat this patient this way and admit them to the hospital? Why don't you send them back to us? And just crossed fingers all the time and said, okay, how do we step back and have some empathy? How do we do empathy? And again, getting into that nursing home was hugely important. One of the stories I like to tell about how these insights really opened my eyes was I did this experiment where we woke up around one o'clock in the morning and then the next day, two o'clock in the morning, next day, three o'clock in the morning and just walked the halls and tried to understand what was going on in, in these nursing homes. And somewhere around five or six o'clock in the morning, there were tons of nurses, a dozen nurses sleeping in the lobby. And I'm thinking to myself, are these people on break? Are they lazy? Are they are they you know, cutting work? What's happening here? Waited for someone to wake up, sat down with them and real and talked to them. Again, doing real design research, talking to them about their life. 
And the reason that they were sleeping there is they told me about their life was this was their second job and they just came from a job before that. So they were just on shift and they get from another job, an overnight shift, and they came to this job. They were sleeping in the lobby to get a few hours of sleep before they had in the morning on this other shift. And then started really talking to more of these nurses and nurses assistants even more, understanding their pay structure, understanding their lives. A lot of them were the major breadwinners in their families, single mothers, trying to put their kids through school, etc., and just had to work terribly hard. So now when you're designing systems, which those nurses and nurses aides are using, you think to yourself, okay, this person's tired. This person's stressed. How do we create a user experience that understands that's as easy as possible, that gives them a way to say, okay, I need a break for a moment. I'm too tired. That can have teammates support them when it's time. And that's really user human experience rather than just making software and expecting people to use it. You start with the human at the center and, and start to design back from there. To which extent do you see that regulation can be a barrier to good user experience? Because in some instances, when you work on healthcare IT, you can understand that the user is going to want as little clicks as possible in the software that they're using. But in practice, they might have to log in each time they have a new patient or just get some authorization processes through before they finish their finish what they're doing or use clinical decision support systems that they use mostly for ignoring all the warnings but that still messes with their workflow and that decision support system even though it's not really doing much has to be there because that's the requirement yeah Again, so there's a very good study. I can, I get it for you after. It's I'm failing to remember the exact author right now. Where um, hold nurses in all sorts of environments, and this is a U.S. study, and ask them, were you part of the implementation or design of the electronic medical record system that you're using? And 99% of them said no. And so this is the epitome of doing healthcare in which it's simply for viability and feasibility, getting back to those original concepts without taking into account the desirability part. And as you said, this is the great example of nurses hacking the system where they figure out ways to get around those warnings on the EMRs. They figure out ways to pull medicines more quickly without registering it on the EMR and then later registering it on the EMR because it's just in their way. The way you build these systems is to start with understanding what these what the users actually need and moving back from there. The regulations part that you're talking about are real and you need to you need to stay within those as well. But you if you start with the regulations, you'll never make a great experience. If you start with the what the experience can be, then you can figure out how to weave the regulations in. A large part of that has to do with just simply the one recommendation for anyone who's making any clinical tools like that is just pre-populating forms as much as possible. Being able to have information be pulled from one part, not only integration with other systems, but integration with your own system. If 
information was already filled in about a patient, you can pre-populate the next form and put in ways that the provider can acknowledge or confirm that information in there rather than having to type it in themselves. That's the lowest hanging fruit I could possibly talk about. If you're not starting there, you're not understanding what a provider needs. Uh, the different hospitals and different countries have different ways of working. So when you're trying to implement uh, a an IT system in, in different institutions, you can very quickly realize that the desires are very different because the clinical guidelines can differ to a certain extent and the habits that the users have are different. To which extent do you see that as a problem? How do you address that issue to create scalable solutions? Yeah, modularity is a very important design concept when creating these clinical tools. So the ability for to have a scalable system that maybe addresses 80, 90% of the use cases. And then within that, having the ability for the user to be able to modularize and change what their user interface looks like. That's going an extra mile to be able to actually user experiences really work. After you do that, or while you're doing that, and you're, you have to have also a way of electronically watching what users do on the platform because you're allowing them to hack the platform. You're allowing them to say this module, this part about this patient's history, I'm never using, so I'm deleting it off of my, my view. And then on the background running data analytics, you see that one user did that, 10 users did that, 100 users did that. And then you create a very tight user product feedback loop to say, okay, that rises to the level of um, importance for feature creation. And so now I know that this is something that a lot of users are trying to hack around. I need to create a better system for them. This is what I mean by not only is, is saying that the best designers are the users themselves. They might not ever tell you what they're doing to your system, but if you create a system that allows them to hack and you are observing it, you can make a better system on the next iteration, the next version of your software. One of the trends or developments that we do see in the design of technology are the low-code or no-code approaches, and they basically are potentially addressing exactly that. So allowing the users or just allowing clients, hospitals to create more solutions based on their own perception of what the users need. But to which extent do you think that can be a problem when you've got um, designers of systems that don't have the design thinking background? And what can happen is that suddenly you've got a mess of solutions that are personalized for specific users, but can create a huge mess in terms of uh, the system. Yeah, I think. Low-code, no-code is important, but if that's your leading concept, it can cause a whole bunch of problems, which you're talking about. Now, getting back to what I'm saying, I think high, sophisticated code 
based on the newest system possible that is a very quick, based on being able to store and use data very quickly and resurface it to the user for good feedback loops and understanding there is important. I think anything that you're building on top of that for again, like maybe 10% it can be done with this low code, no code on top of that. From there, as you're watching people use that, you see the big trends and you can take the big trends and convert those trends into the high code part of your system. And so in that way, you have all these users become part of your product team. That's something that's, I think, extremely important to talk about. Your users are part of your product team. Your users are part of your product team, right? It's not your product team should be observing these users and translating what needs to be built into the high code part and brought back to your engineering team. And so to avoid that problem means, I think, leading with saying the whole system needs to be modularized, the whole system needs to be low note is a very hard proposition in healthcare and really will get you into trouble, especially on the regulatory side. How do you see that the design can empower providers or users? What is an empowered provider or user? So let me talk about the patient for a second. For empathy building, the, the, the North Star for me, the thing that I hold in my mind, and we do this at IDEO a lot, is say, let's think about the moment a person becomes a patient. Use the word consumer if you really like, but a person becomes a patient. And think about that moment when it happens to you or it happens to a loved one and your entire world changes right? You are all of a sudden entered into a system that's so much bigger than you. So much, so much bigger than you be that you become a medical record number. All of a sudden you're assigned another number to label you. And you now become a piece of the system in which your humanity, your needs are looked into, but in fact are compromised by saying, okay, now you come to this waiting room and wait there for me, the provider, uh, and the system that I'm in to see you when I'm ready. You all of a sudden are given access to information only when that access is granted by some administrator or coming onto a portal of some sort. You are made second. So how can a patient become even more empowered? I think one way to do it is by being having strength in numbers and that means finding advocates, family members, other patients who will go through the process with you. I think all too common, we feel shameful or we think that we should be somehow uh, good at navigating the system. It's impossible as a patient. Again, it's so much bigger than you. There's no way you're ever going to understand it. So having and looking for people who also are going through the system to share tips to say, I need help here. I don't understand what's helping here, etc. cetera, is uh, one way to get strength in numbers. And the other way is to just ask questions. If you ask questions to your providers and say, hey, I need your attention right now and advocate for yourself, you will be able to navigate these systems so much better. Too often we allow providers and some, sometimes give providers, put them on a pedestal a little bit and say, okay, we're just taking what they said. Being able to really be prepared for, pre for visits, et cetera, will allow you to do that.
getting back to one last thing of what I talked about, your health is beyond this episode of care with this provider. Your health is so much larger than this one episode of care with this provider. So bring along the things that are important to you from these apps that you're using. Tell them your weight loss journey and show them the graph of showing what happened over the last year. Maybe you gained weight over the last year and say, okay, there's an episode here that made that happen. And maybe that will help that provider understand you better and your diabetes. So show them the times that you were being stressed on your, your behavioral health app, et cetera. Those parts are, those parts of your health are part of your health care. And you are the only one that can bring them in right now because there doesn't exist a system to integrate it. You are the integration. What about the, the role of design in this whole process? Everything I just talked about is design. So anything in the world that can be made with your own hands, with your own brain, with your, the only systems, anything uh, besides nature, and even at this point, nature, through genetics as well as other modalities, can be designed by humans. I think we all too often, as we started here, think of design as just about the, the beauty of something and the prettiness of something. Design is about how it's a great experience, but it's also about the functionality and it's also about the, the monetary side as well. So you are a designer and if you have the creative confidence to say, we're going to change the system, even in this very moment, by changing the system to say, hey, doc, I need you to look at this weight loss chart that I have from this app. It's important to me. That is design. That is empowering. And we call that creative confidence and try to teach it to all the users that we work with, whether that be patient or provider. And then also, again, look for those enlightened leaders who are wanting to instill creative confidence in their users. We talked a lot about what to have in mind when uh, creating solutions for healthcare. But I want to turn that question around a little bit and ask, based on your experiences, can you name a few common mistakes that you notice that innovators make when it comes to designing healthcare? Sure. So for one, clinicians make this mistake a lot and designers also make the mistake. But for clinicians, when they come into the world of trying to solve problems through product and operational problems, they do the same mistake that they make. And I'm a clinician. I've made this mistake many times, which is called diagnostic anchoring, where we, we say, how are you today to the patient? And then we allow them to speak for 10 seconds before we listen, before we, we talk ourselves. My father right now is ill and he's been ill for some time and he's been really deep into the healthcare system been having some problems getting care because he has a rare disease and so we brought him to a, a system recently for a doctor that is known as a great diagnostician was known as a great doctor who can help maybe figure out some of the nuances of what's going on when i observed the first visit with him he listened for over 15 minutes before he spoke. He's one of the best diagnosticians I've ever met. He came recommended by the head of my alumni association from my, from my medical school, from respected professors that I know, etc. as this is your best diagnostician. That is what made him so unique, is that he listened before he 
converged. This idea of divergence and convergence, if you converge before you've had ample time to diverge, you'll never get to a great solution. And that goes for clinicians as well as designers and, and product people. Can you share perhaps any of your realizations about design that you came to after leaving the clinical practice and started working on design for health? Sure. Yes. Design is a team-based approach. Humility is an enormous part of it. There are so many pieces of design that need to be incorporated in how you uh, move through a project or create a product or create a new company that has to do with business design, meaning looking at financial models and being able to create strategy around that organizational design, how you set up the organization, design research, which is the people who will go and really dig into users' experience, what we call interaction design, people who will make low fidelity the medium fidelity software or using actual physical 3D printing, et cetera, for people to interact with in order to, in order to get information from them to make the next inter iteration. You need all these skills, writers who are able to communicate amazingly, then communications designers who can use graphics to, to communicate what you mean and what you are. You can't do that all alone. And so um, looking for partners who have all of those skills. The other thing that I learned is that some of the best lessons come from analogous learning. So one of our, one of the great examples for IDEO is we were working with a hospital to rearrange and redo some of their surgeries and how surgeries would work and team base would work. What we did is we went out and looked at a pit crew for, for racing cars and saw how they worked and looked at how smooth the communications were there, what they were doing. And we got so many insights that we brought back to the surgery room to understand it and really improved how they were working as well. Don't stick in your own world. And that happens in healthcare all the time. There's so much inspiration and uh, so much we can learn from what we call analogous learning. It's, I actually know about that case. And I must say that I really have been wondering lately which industry or which processes should I um, go look at to get a little bit of inspiration of how to think about healthcare solutions differently. Because when you are constantly in the healthcare uh, space, you do get into a sort of a bubble in terms of thinking. So I don't know, do you have any additional recommendations regarding which industry or which use case to look at for inspiration about processes in healthcare? Yeah, a number, but I would start with saying the tool that you can use is simply how might we. So once you start using this way of thinking about asking the question of instead of how, which industry should I go to, which is looking at an answer, instead stepping back and say, how might we all together think and figure out how, for the example I just said, how a team who's in tight in close quarters and has to be right next to one and works closely together in a, an effort that's orchestrated and sometimes beautiful. And then you can brainstorm from there and find, okay, let's go see a pit crew. So that's the place to start thinking, which then opens up your mind and the possibilities of, of where to go from there. There isn't a project at IDEO that we do without doing at least one piece of analogous research. 
it has to be there. And we don't say, which one should we go to? We start with, how might we solve this problem? And that allows us to look at the next industry. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast and celebrate with us because next week we're going to air episode 200. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.